Welcome to our study of uh, the book of Revelation. Thank you very much. We are into the really interesting parts at the end of the book of Revelation. I feel like you have a good understanding of the structure, and now we're just going to kind of build on top of that a little bit. So let me say a prayer, and we'll jump right in. Lord, we're grateful that we can come together to reason together, that we can study your word, and I pray you'd open our hearts, open our minds, and I pray that we would be transformed by the truth of your word and that we might be emissaries of justice and truth in this world. Lord, I do pray for our leaders. I pray you would turn their hearts toward you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you know, as I always say, here's the number for questions during class. It's on your handout. It's on your electronic handout if you're joining us online. So text your questions to that number during class. We also do a Friday morning podcast over at SoWeSpeak.com. If you have a podcast app, almost everybody uses some podcast app, just type in So We Speak and it will pull up all of those and we kind of go into more detail. And for example, I know that this Friday, we're gonna talk a little bit about hell tonight, but I really want to go into much more detail on that subject and the podcast is a great place for to go much more in depth. So feel free to listen to the podcast if you wanna go a little further into it. So we, this is just a recap uh, and I know you're thinking, oh, you tell us this all the time. I know and you're gonna remember it too. And seriously, you'll come out of this thinking, man, I'm really comfortable with the book of Revelation. I know that chapter one through three is Jesus speaking to the seven churches and to all of us through all of time, probably the least read words of Jesus in the Bible. So chapters one through three, then chapters four through 19 begin a period of God judging Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet who are allied against God and persecuting God's people. And you see seven seals being opened and seven trumpets being blown and seven bowls being poured out. And this is God judging the evil in the world. And then they all come together in chapter 19 and we have a battle of Armageddon and God prevails and the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, thick hell. In other words, they're, they're judged and condemned for the evil that they have done. Then chapter 20 moves on, but it opens up a different kind of a scenario. And so after the battle of Armageddon, finishes in 19, chapter 20, very short chapter, it opens with this. Then I saw an angel come down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the abyss, a bottomless pit and a great chain, and he sees the dragon. Who's the dragon? The ancient serpent, devil, Satan, those are names for that dragon, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it so he might not deceive or lie to the people or the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he'll be released for a little while. But then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of all those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, all the Christians who'd been killed for being Christians. And uh, all the souls of those who, uh, for the word of God and had not worshiped the beast and not uh, taken the mark of the beast. Now we're talking apparently about Christians during that tribulation period, aren't we? Because of the mark of the beast and that sort of thing. And so they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the people who had died did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Then it says, and when the thousand years were ended, Satan is released, he stirs up all the nations and, and God destroys them. And then the devil, Satan himself, was thrown into the lake of fire where the, where the Antichrist and the false prophet were and they'll be tormented day and night forever. And I'll talk more about that on the podcast. I'd like to go into great detail about, is eternal punishment a real thing? Not all Christians believe in that. Is punishment temporary? Is it eternal? Do you live forever or do you just cease to exist? I'd like to go into that, but it's gonna take some time. So we'll do that on Friday. For this lesson, I'd like to recap just a little bit. How do Christians understand this thousand year reign of Christ? this what's called the millennium, which is the Latin word for a thousand years. Well, if you remember, there are three ways 
in the last 2,000 years, Christians have understood that. And it all revolves around, does the second coming of Christ happen before or after that thousand year reign? And so the first view is called, uh, well, used to be, but it isn't if you, uh, hang on. There we go. Uh, premillennialism says Christ will return before the millennium. And this is a chronologically linear view, not a bad view. You got Armageddon in chapter 19. You've got, which is the second coming of Christ. I mean, Christ comes for Armageddon and slays the armies that are arrayed against him. And then chapter 20 happens chronologically after that. So there's your thousand year reign after that. So pre-millennial, before the thousand years, Christ's second coming is in chapter 19, the thousand years is in chapter 20. That's not an unreasonable way to look at it. Post-millennial view, however, says we live in a time of the spread of the gospel and there's gonna be a period of peace on earth and that is the millennium. It's when the gospel spreads and the kingdom comes and we are living, we believers, members of the kingdom, the church, those are all synonymous thing, words. We are the rule of Christ on earth. And so it's happening now, maybe a thousand years, maybe longer, because a thousand is a pretty symbolic number. And when that's done, Jesus will come and destroy the unbelievers who have rejected the gospel. So that's called post-millennial, meaning things are gonna get a lot better and then Jesus is gonna come and those who've had plenty of chances to believe the gospel will be judged. So Christ will come after the millennium. And then of course, amillennialism says that we're living in a tribulation right now, we're living in the millennium, that all these things are not chronologically literal, they're linear, they're going on now. They're all happening at the same time. This is the Bible's way of symbolically saying you're gonna experience tribulation. But if you're in the kingdom, you're gonna experience peace. Remember Jesus said, my peace I give you, peace I leave to you. In other words, amillennialism says, this is symbolic, guys. Let's not take it you know, overly chronologically linear. This is all happening now. So they're all legitimate ways to look at it. I'm not saying they're all right. I'm simply saying that they're all Christian ways of looking at it. Here's a good chart that I found that I think will help a little bit. And so there, there are three views, but premillennialism has two flavors. And you can choose whichever flavor you like. And I'll show you some other charts in a minute. But let's uh, call this, I wanna call this historic premillennialism because this form of looking at Revelation 20 is what the church thought predominantly. There was argument, first couple hundred years. They read it and they said, this is probably chronologically in a row. Chapter 19, then chapter 20. And so it's called historic premillennialism. So what happens? Well, you've got the cross of Christ. You've got the church age, meaning the age of first Christians to us. At some point, you're gonna have chapter four through 19 happen. And usually they think this is a seven year period in the future. Then you will have the second coming of Christ he will reign with the saints from the, from the tribulation for a thousand years, and then you will have judgment, which is gonna be our topic now. That's the end of chapter 20. That's really about as chronologically linear as you could get, right? You've got chapter four, you've got the church age, then you have chapter four through 19, seven years of tribulation. Chapter 19, Jesus comes back. The saints who were killed during the tribulation the Christians, when I say saints, that's Christians, they reign with Christ a thousand years, then everybody gets raised up for judgment. Just a plain vanilla type of premillennialism. But in the 1800s, you got a more of a Neapolitan flavor of ice cream. You got a little fancier premillennialism and it's called dispensational premillennialism. It's the same, but it adds a couple of elements. So you have the cross of Christ, of course, the resurrection, then you have a church age, and we're living in that right now. If you believe this, we are in the church age, but soon there will be a rapture. 
Jesus will come and take all the Christians on the earth now off the earth and then we'll begin the seven years of tribulation. Then chapter four through 19 will happen, but we won't be here. After the tribulation, now it goes back to the same as historic. Uh, you see Jesus come, chapter 19, battle of Armageddon, defeats the Antichrist, and then the saints from the tribulation are gonna rule for a thousand years, then you have the last judgment. Wrinkle here is that the only Christians in the tribulation, since the church has been raptured, are gonna be Jews who become Christians. And they're the ones that are gonna reign with Christ. So kind of two flavors of premillennialism, Jesus coming before the thousand year reign. Then you have uh, postmillennialism. So here we are, we're in, somewhere in here in the church age and at some point persecution will get very bad and it will be a tribulation and at some point Jesus will return and everybody will be raised. And that is the time period of the gospel ruling. Things are going to get better. Things get better and better as the gospel spreads. And then amillennialism says where this is the church age, it's also the millennium, and it's also the tribulation. It's like, well, yeah, this is the church age and there's persecution. There was in the first century, there have been, there is today in the world. So tribulation and persecution are going on and there's joy and peace in the kingdom of God wherever the gospel rules. So all that's happening at once. So that's just an amillennial view. It doesn't mean there's not a millennium. It just says, you know, that's a symbolic number. That's probably gonna happen for the whole church age. And at the end of that time, and no one knows when that will be, of course, Jesus said, no one knows the day or hour, but Jesus will return. Everybody will be raised from the dead and we'll have a judgment, okay? So those are the basic ways of looking at that thousand years. So that's a recap, but let me stop there and we'll take any questions before we move on to the last Chapter 20 is really short. The last few verses are, well, okay, now it's time to judge everybody. But exactly who's being judged? So before we get to that, questions? Well, you may want to answer this then, but when you talk about final judgment and everyone being raised for judgment, is that believers and unbelievers? A good question, and that's what we're going to move to. Thank you. But I, because depending on your view you have different people being raised from the dead and different people being judged. So let's talk about that. Let me jump right in. So here is the rest of chapter 20. Uh, then, after I, what I just read, I saw a great white throne. And white, let's talk symbolism here. White is pure, remember I talked about when you have white garments, it's talking about pure character, righteousness. So a white throne is justice, righteousness, goodness, no sin, no impurity. So this is God's throne. This is a white throne, meaning this is a righteous throne. It's not the throne like the Antichrist had. It's not his rule, which wasn't white, wasn't just. This is God's throne. And so that's why they, you see this word white. I saw a great white throne. And so this is called the great white throne judgment because some of these folks have multiple judgments too. So we gotta keep our judgments straight. This is the great white throne judgment. And him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Sounds like the world just ended, and it did. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened and then one other book was opened, which is the book of life. We've met the book of life uh, earlier, a couple of times in Revelation. And the book of life is, if your name is in the book of life, then you belong to Jesus Christ. This is a good thing. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So these books must be in, uh, some people would say symbolically, it's not like God is, pencil and paper, he's probably got an iPad. Yeah, I mean, at this point, right? But the point is, is the books are a record of your deeds. And so people are judged according to their deeds, what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death 
and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is just packed with good, interesting stuff. And so I want to, first of all, I'd like to walk through how each one of those views looks at this paragraph. And then I want to answer a couple of big questions at the end that are really important questions. But basically what you have here is the end of times judgment. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, you'll see it as called the day of the Lord or the great day of the Lord or the great and fearsome day of the Lord. Uh, you'll see it as the judgment in Jesus' teaching. Uh, and so, in other words, the idea that there will be a time when an accounting is given by everyone for what they have done. God will do justice in the universe. But Second Peter talks about this idea of the end of creation. I just wanted you to, to see the connections here. Because in the New Testament, you're going to see a lot of things that, oh, that connects to, to the book of Revelation, and it does. And here's what Peter said, writing a letter. He said, now, you Christians, this is before the book of Revelation is written, you Christians, I want you to know the day of the Lord, judgment day, the return of Christ, will come like a thief, meaning you don't know when it's gonna happen. And then the heavens will pass away, they'll cease to exist. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and all the things that are done on it will be exposed. In other words, everybody's deeds will be known because these books are gonna be open. Since all these things, now here's the point that he wants to make. He's not necessarily just trying to educate you on the end times, he's talking to you and me saying, since that's true, he says, how then ought we to be living, knowing that that's coming in lives of holiness, meaning set apart and devoted to God, and godliness, meaning wanting to be like God, not wanting to rule my own life and do what I want to do, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, meaning this universe will be destroyed and all the deeds of all the emperors and all the kings. Imagine, you're reading this, under persecution when Peter wrote this to Christians and he said, just remember, this world is gonna end and Caesar's gonna die and everybody who's oppressing you is gonna be held accountable for what they have done. But since you know this is gonna happen, how should you be living? You should be living the way Jesus taught you to live in devotion to God. Pray for your enemies, have compassion to others, forgive people's debts. In other words, be live the Christian life because you know that there will be justice done in the end. So you get this idea of a, a new, uh, the, the world ceases to exist. In our next lesson, which is the last lesson, we'll finish the book of Revelation. Chapters 21 and 22 talk about heaven, but it talks about a new heaven and a new earth. Well, that makes sense because the old heaven and the old earth are gone, right? But there are different points of view, of course, uh, on exactly what does that mean? Is it gonna be a total home makeover? I mean, are we gonna remodel? Or are we gonna build new? You know, are we gonna tear this place down and build new? Is it gonna be spiritual? Is it gonna be physical? That's what we're gonna talk about in our next lesson. But there's the reference to that is that this heaven and earth have gone away. Okay, so let's talk about historic premillennialism. First of all, the throne that you see, and this is where our text happens right here, judgment. So you've got the church age, you have seven years of tribulation, you have the second coming of Christ, he rules for a thousand years with the faithful from here, and then at the end, you have a resurrection and a judgment that we just read about. First of all, everybody believes, and I wanna point this out to you because this is pretty interesting. Do you remember in chapter four, go back and read chapter four, and the very first part is John has this vision. He said, and I looked and a door opened into heaven and I saw the throne room of God and it is a magnificent vision, just unbelievable. Everything, I've said this several times, everything that happens in the rest of this book emanates from there. 
It's not like, I'm gonna tell you what the Antichrist did and how God sort of responded. He's trying to keep up with what the Antichrist, that is not the way this story goes, is it? It's like God says, I'm gonna begin pouring out judgments. And Antichrist and the devil are all like, we're fighting against you, we're gonna kill your people, we're gonna do all of this. God is the one driving this story. God is sovereign, not the devil. And so everything's emanating from that throne room. And so when judgment opens up, what do you see? And I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. We're back in the throne room where we started this thing. In other words, it's always been about God. God's always been sovereign, not the devil. And that's important to know, isn't it? I mean, if you're a Christian under intense persecution and you read this, you're paying attention. You go, wait a minute. We started in the throne room. We're ending in the throne room. God won. We win. In other words, Satan's never been in control of this. It may look like it. Remember what Paul said? Our battle's not, this in Ephesians 6, our battle's not really against flesh and blood. I know it seems that way, but actually Satan is the one doing his worst and he's doomed. And so here we are back in the throne room. So historic premillennialism, just the general linear, chronological linear idea, what is happening here? So at this point, you don't have a rapture. So you've got a lot of Christians that have died, right, in this time period. And so the thinking here, the only, you have two resurrections, right? You've got the Christians that died in the tribulation, came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And then at judgment, the passage we just read, everybody else is raised, Christians, non-Christians, and everybody, is being judged, both the wicked and the righteous. And the way judgment works is that you open the books and everybody walks up and everybody is judged according to what they have done. And guess what? No one is righteous, not even one. But there is the Lamb's Book of Life and if your name is in there, your price has been paid and you are righteous. And if your name is not in there, then you are on your own, right? So the judgment in this view is wicked and righteous alike. One of the other interesting things here is, I wanna connect one little phrase. It said, death gave up its dead. I wanna go all the way back. So you notice we started in the throne room, we end in the throne room. There are connections everywhere in Revelation. Now I wanna go all the way back to Genesis three. Do you remember the fall of humanity? So God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Satan comes along and says, nah, his, his one lie, you won't die. In fact, you'll actually be like God and he knows that and he's jealous of you. You should eat this. Oh, I think we will. And what happens? Death enters the world. Adam and Eve were never meant to die. But once death enters the world, every human being has to go through the door of death, don't we? Every one of us will die. And death has a claim on you. But notice what happens at the end. Death has to give up its prey because death can no longer hold us. Death is no longer the end of the story. Does that make sense? It was, if all you had was the fall of humanity and you don't have Jesus Christ, death is the end of the story. Death owns you. But notice what happens here because Christ has defeated death. Death is no longer the end of the story. Even death gives up its prey. So in this view, you have everybody being judged. Now, dispensational premillennialism, it's different and I'll show you why. Because what we have happening here is you have a rapture of the church. You have all the Christians going. At the second coming of Christ, you have all of these Christians, who Jews who became Christians, going. And so everybody who's been a Christian, number one, has already been judged. I mean, let's face it, if you die 
and next thing you know, there you are with Jesus, and he says, the world's gonna end in a little while, and you go, wonder how judgment's gonna turn out. It's like, like I've said before, it's not like you have provisional status. Like, you may get to stay here, you may not, you know? No, you've been judged righteous or you wouldn't be there. So there's sort of a judgment happening all the time, especially, now I'm gonna bring two things together. If you think that you go to heaven when you die, fine, I'm fine with that thought. But bottom line is judgment happens on an ongoing basis, doesn't it? Do you think that the wicked people go straight to hell when they die? Nobody thinks that. Good, because we gotta have a judgment somewhere. And so in this view, the only people being judged at final judgment are the wicked people. All the Christians already in heaven, right? At some point in time, they've already been raised. They've been raptured or they've been raised out of the tribulation. So I'm just saying in the, pre, in the dispensational view, it's just the wicked. And so the great white throne judgment is a confirmation of their judgment. Think of it less as a trial and more as a sentencing hearing. In other words, we already know you're guilty or you would have been raptured. So you're here to find out what your sentence is. So it's a little different view, isn't it? As to, and that's, I appreciated that question, but it kind of depends on how much rapturing and church leaving you think is going on. And so in this view, judgment is being confirmed on the unrighteous people. Okay. When the Son of Man, I want to go back to Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, because if you go back to Jesus, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples in the last week of his life, right? So he's talking about judgment coming ahead because I want to set up now the amillennial view. Because if you're amillennial, you read this passage, you read Revelation, you go, there's only one way to make sense of both of these. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, second coming of Christ, and all the angels with him, saw that in chapter 19, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Ooh, it sure sounds like big judgment, right? Before him will be gathered all the nations, meaning all the people from all time. So it looks like we got a general resurrection of the dead. And notice this, he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. What does that imply? It implies that everybody just got raised and you're judging. Some are righteous, some are not righteous. Different, a little bit different view, isn't it? Got no rapture here in this text. I'm not arguing against the other. I just want to point out why a millennial is different than premillennial. They look at this passage and they say, sure looks like there's judgment actually going on. He'll place the sheep on his right, goats on the left, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom. In other words, you're going to heaven, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And it goes on and talks about for you cared for the, you did these good deeds and you, you did the will of God. But then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, whom we know have been the Devil and his angels are devil and demons. We call them demons. They've gone into the lake of fire. So from this text, if this is all you have, again, I'm not arguing for or against a view, but I want to tell you why an amillennialist will have a little different view. They'll look at this and they'll say, sure sounds like at the second coming of Jesus, he just, the antichrist and the false prophet and the devil and all of his followers, the angels, They've all been condemned and they get thrown into hell, the lake of fire for eternity. And people are raised and there's a judgment. This is the same parable that Jesus tells about the wheat and the weeds or the, the wheat and the tares. This is the same parable that he tells about catching the fish and you sort out the good ones and you throw the bad ones away. Jesus had all kinds of parables about judgment. I know we don't talk about it very much, but Jesus talked a lot about judgment. It's important. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So I just want you to see that when you look at that, sure looks like second coming, you have judgment and everybody's gonna get judged. And sure enough, amillennialists, that's exactly their view. They think that here we are somewhere in here, right? We're in the tribulation, we're also in the millennium. In other words, we're living the revelation story and Jesus is going to come once right there and we will have a judgment and then on into eternity. So what's happening here? If you believe this view, 
you tend to have the view that you don't go straight to heaven when you die. What seems to be more consistent is when you die, everybody sleeps. And all I mean by sleep is you're not aware of any passage of time. And the next thing you know, you wake up and everybody who's ever lived is being resurrected. And you're all standing before the great throne and books are opened to see what you have done and the Lamb's book of life is open. In other words, chapter 20, judgment happens. It's really simple and it doesn't have a lot of other moving parts to it, but it's just fundamentally that you're gonna have the second coming of Christ, everybody's raised from the dead. Now, I don't want you to feel like I'm imposing on you that if you're a non-millennialist, you can't believe people die and go straight to heaven. They generally don't though. It just is more consistent in this view. And Christians believe different things. Some believe when you die, you're judged right away. And if you're wicked, you just wait. You take a number, it's like being at the Department of Motor Vehicles, take a number, and at the end of the millennium, we'll get to you, all right? And we're gonna judge you at that time. Or some people believe you die and you sleep and we all get raised and judged. And I don't know how you were raised or what you thought, but those are both views that Christians have. But the amillennial view is you got only one judgment, happens at the second coming, you're judged by the truth of the word of God and, uh, Everybody is judged at that time. And the sheep and the goats and the wheat and the weeds, in other words, all those parables of Jesus play themselves out at that exact time and in that exact way, okay? So everybody, but I do wanna emphasize, everybody believed just judgment happens. It's not like any of these views don't believe the Bible or don't believe there's gonna be a judgment. They're just kinda of like, well, wait a minute, I read this and I go, maybe the Christians won't get judged. And others say, no, I read it and I go, we're all gonna get judged at the same time. This is differences of opinion about how it's gonna happen, not whether or not it will happen. Okay. First Corinthians, as we go to postmillennialism, I wanna talk about, the, and postmillennialism and amillennialism are a lot alike when it comes to judgment. But this is an interesting passage that this is Paul, way before Revelation is written, writing to Christians saying, as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. That's what we were talking about a minute ago, isn't it? Because of Adam's sin, everybody dies. And in fact, without Christ, that's the end of your story. You die, that's it. Satan owns your soul. But Christ, all are made alive meaning righteous and wicked, everybody is raised from the dead and you live eternally. Some unfortunately in the, uh, fortunately in the kingdom and others unfortunately not because of their rebellion. So this is an interesting passage here connecting those two. It's a way to understand the gospel. But each in his own order, Christ is the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and every power. Think Antichrist, think Roman Empire, think everybody who's ever persecuted it, he's going to judge them. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And this is the interesting thing. The last enemy he will destroy is death itself. And so as you go into the idea of heaven, you actually have this sense of coming full circle to the Garden of Eden. And when we get into chapter 21 and 22, I don't want you to be surprised. You're gonna read it and go, am I reading Revelation or am I reading Genesis 1? Because this sounds like a Garden of Eden scenario. Indeed it does. Because things have come full circle. Death entered the world because of people's sin. Life came into the world because of Jesus Christ. And now things are put back the way they were supposed to be. There weren't supposed to be tears. There aren't supposed to be death. And we'll talk about those passages. But I wanted you to see the big picture of the Bible. Revelation isn't just some kooky prophecy that we can argue about, you know, and God put it here just to keep the Christians occupied, right, arguing about it. Revelation brings the whole story together all the way back to God, the end of the story of redemption, the fall of humanity, and God loved us so much, he sent his only son 
so that life could come back into the world and death doesn't have the last word. Does this, I know this probably makes sense, but I want you to see the beauty of this. And I want you to see how Revelation fits into the whole story of God. Questions? Okay. Will the wicked live eternally, but only in hell after the final judgment? Or will the second death end evil? Good question. So I wanted to go into much greater detail on this on Friday. So I'm sorry not to answer the question fully, but it would just take quite a bit of time. It's a very interesting question. But fundamentally what this text indicates, let me just leave it at this for the moment. This text indicates everybody lives forever. All have a soul. You have God, you have God breathed a life into us and we are all eternal beings, okay? We are all created in the image of God. There is a piece of us that is eternal. Depending on whether we trust in Christ to bear our burden of sin and we become right with God, we're declared right with God because of what Jesus did, not because of what I did. If it's on my deeds, I'm in trouble. But because of Jesus, I will live eternally with him. If I am wicked, I reject him, I own my deeds. In that case then, I will still live eternally not with him. And so the short answer to that question is the text by itself seems to indicate that uh, we will all live eternally. And so some in hell and some in heaven, just to use our standard terminology. So I'll, I'll go into a lot more depth on what Christians think why people disagree with that, and if so, how do they disagree with that? But that's, that is basically just what this text says. All right. Uh, what is in the other books at Judgment? What is in the other books? So what, you, what the text indicates is that books were opened, and in some sense they are a record of all, and you're judged by what you have done. In other words, God opens a book. Let's see, let's go to the Fs, fakes, fakes, fakes. Yeah, there you are. God, that's a weird name. Anyway, and so here you are, and here's a record of everything that you have done. You are accountable for your actions, right? You got some free will, I gave you choice. Yeah, well, how'd you use it? What'd you do? And so the text would indicate that those books are a record of what we have done. And then there's one other book, the Lamb's Book of Life. By the way, side note, do you remember when Jesus, Christians by and large, believe there are far, far fewer people going to heaven than are gonna be rebellious against God. And that's why there are many books here and just one book of life. One of the reasons Christians believe that is, if you remember, this is just one example. Jesus said many things about this, but one you probably remember is he said, narrow is the gate that leads to life, but broad is the path that leads to destruction. So some people say, well, there's a reason there's so many books of the deeds of the wicked and just one book. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but that is a Christian view, is that the scriptures seem to indicate that few there are that are willing to turn their lives over to Christ. Good question. So will Christians be judged on their choices even if they have repented and asked God for forgiveness? Yes, great question. That just triggers me in the sense that I have two big ideas I wanna tell you about here. And hopefully I can remember them both. Now seriously, so will Christians be judged even if they've repented? So two thoughts, number one, huge difference between repentant sin and unrepentant sin. I, I don't really love this saying, and I apologize if you've said it, I'm not trying to be offensive, but everybody sins, we're all sinners. I don't really like that. Not because there's not some truth in it, but it just is very misleading because the implication is we're all sinners so we're all the same. Oh no. I'll agree with the first part to some extent, but I will definitely not agree with the second part. Some people are repentant 
of their sin. I've placed my trust in Christ. I still commit a sin. I turn to Christ, John 1, 7. I confess it and the blood of Christ washes me of that sin. Or I'm committed to sin. I'm not repentant. I am not bowing to Christ. I'm living my own life. I own those sins. Huge difference between repentant and unrepentant sins. So that's point number one. Point number two, what happens to Christians when you walk up on judgment day? I'm gonna give you an opinion at this point. So I always try to be careful about the difference between an opinion and what the text says. This is what the text leads me to believe. I believe everyone will be judged by what they have done. I mean, that's the way I read this text. Uh, you know, Terry Fakes walks up there, opens up the book, he goes, this does not look good. <laughs> you know, I believe you're in some trouble, son. Uh, and I would go, guilty as charged, and no defense. I did those things. And then they open the Lamb's book and I go, oh. And Jesus steps up and says, but he's mine. And he said, very well, you're, you're free. It's been paid, your debt's been paid. You have already died. Jesus did it for you. And you've died to self. That's what Romans 6 says, being a Christian is. My old self has died. Luke 9 says, I've denied myself, taken up my cross. You see this language in the New Testament? Is a death has happened. I just didn't have to be the one that did it because Jesus did it for me. So I think, I see this as a beautiful scene of, I think I'm gonna, we're gonna go up and we're just gonna plead guilty. And then Jesus is gonna say, you are, but no longer, because I took your sin. And that's gonna be the most beautiful picture of redemption. That's a bit of an opinion, but that's how I read that text. So those are the two thoughts I have about Christians showing up, is, is Christians will say, your deeds don't look too good, but you belong to Jesus Christ. Others, your deeds don't look too good, do you have a checkbook? Did you bring your checkbook? Because you owe a debt here, which you cannot pay. Right? That's the gospel. Makes sense. I want you to see, this is not rocket science. I mean, the scripture's very consistent and very coherent. Question. You mentioned Jews who would come to believe in Christ during the tribulation. Will there be non-Jews as well? Well, I hate to put words in the mouth of the dispensational view, but generally speaking, the dispensational view reads the text of chapters four through 19. There's a place in the text where you'll remember we talked about it. 144,000 get marked. 12,000 from this Jewish tribe, 12,000 from this Jewish tribe. If you see this as symbolic, you go, that's just people becoming Christians. Some of them might've been Jews, some of them might've been Gentiles. But if you're a dispensationalist, the, your hermeneutic, the way you approach the scriptures is, God's not done with the Jews. We raptured the Christians out of here, the Gentile Christians, Jews, we, we raptured those guys out of here. During the tribulation, it's just gonna be Jews coming to Christ, and that's kind of how he finishes out the promise to Abraham. So in that view, it's pretty much just Jews. What is the point of the thousand years? Satan is bound, so what is life about? Who's alive? Are more people becoming Christians, etc.? Yes, so let's put on our premillennialist hats. And so looking at it from the premillennialist point of view, what happens in the thousand year reign is Jesus comes down in chapter 19. There's antichrist and false prophet and all their armies and he breathes out the word of truth and they're destroyed, okay? So you're gone. And he says, all my Christians during this tribulation, and we're probably futurists, premillennialists, almost always a futurist. We had a seven year tribulation, and now you're gonna come up and you're gonna reign with me for a thousand years. And there's still people on the earth. He didn't kill everybody on the earth, he just killed the armies, right? And so we're all living there, and Jesus is living in Jerusalem, and he and his people are reigning over the earth and Satan pops up and most of these people go, thank God Satan's back. Haven't been able to gamble or look at porn in a thousand years. Okay, I shouldn't have said that. I apologize for that. But you get my ideas. The point is they go right back to sin. I mean, that's kind of what the text says, right? So that premillennial view says that's the people that are there and sure enough, people still go back to sin. And so then you have the end times and everybody gets judged. So. There are people there in the thousand years, Christ is ruling, and even with Christ on earth, 
this is what John said. Light has come into the world. John chapter one, light came into the world, but men love the darkness more than the light. And here you see it happening. Jesus is here. I've got my premillennial hat on. Jesus is here for a thousand years reigning. And when Satan is unbound, people still love sin more than they love God. So that's, that's kind of the premillennial view of that time, is people still turn back to sin. Where did the idea of a rapture in the dispensationalist view come from, and why did it take over so quickly, given that it's only been around for a couple hundred years? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It, the rapture, it's this, I'm trying to think of a short way to say this. So the rapture comes about because of the, the way the dispensationalist, dispensationalism isn't just about revelation. This dispensationalist view is a way of reading scripture and a way of thinking about scripture. And so you read the Old Testament and you read these dispensations and these arrangements with God. And by the time you get here, you already have, man, this isn't sounding really good, but this is kind of what happened. This is the pre, you have some preconceptions that require you to have a rapture, okay? In other words, it's not like you just look in there, hey, rapture's here, nobody ever saw it. Rapture's not there. And so you, you kind of come into it needing to have a rapture, okay? Dispensationalists are curling their toes right now like, hey, I'm gonna give you a five-hour you know, better explanation than that. Yes, you could. But fundamentally, there's a commitment to a rapture. So you read First Thessalonians where Christ gathers up people in the air and the dispensational way of reading the Bible, let me just say that it's very literal. They would say it's very true. And that is, that doesn't sound like the second coming. That sounds like he stayed in the air. He didn't come to the earth. You know, you might call that a technicality, but they don't see it as a technicality. They said he only came down in the air. He didn't come to the earth, so it must not be the second coming. It must be a rapture. That's, and I'm not trying to be flippant, but that's kind of how the rapture got there. It's not just really well attested in the scriptures. Hence, Christians for 1,800 years didn't think of a rapture. So I'm not telling you it's untrue. I'm not trying to bash it. I'm just saying... That's why I think it came. It came as a result of that dispensational way of looking at it. Why is it so popular? A lot of ideas, but let me just put it to you this way. If I said, hey, would you like to be an amillennialist and live through the tribulation? And let me tell you in Revelation, all the bad stuff that's gonna happen to you. Or would you like to be a dispensational premillennialist and I'll just rapture you out of here before the bad stuff happens. I don't know about you, but that's an easy choice to me, right? I'm being flippant, but you get the idea. It's very appealing, isn't it? That God will take care of his own. And I'm, I'm really not trying to be disrespectful, but I do think there's a bit of an appeal there. And frankly, it's been marketed well. And when I say marketed, I don't mean in an insidious way. I think the people that believe that believe that very sincerely. And so you've got the left behind books and you've got the movies and things that, and again, that's not manipulating you. That's just people telling you what they believe. And I think it's been very powerfully conveyed. So that's why I think it's probably popular. And that's an opinion. That's just my opinion. Okay, how were faithful Jews judged who died before Christ was born? Good question. <laughs> That's a long question. I'll give you the short version now. I'll give you a lot of interesting details on Friday. Fair enough. Short version is this. Christians, couple of views. I'll give you more on Friday. But the way Christians have wrestled with this is the idea, first, you are judged based on the covenant under which you are living. So... Jews before the time of Christ were living under the covenant of Moses, the law of Moses. And so you're judged based on the law of Moses and your faithfulness to that. Did you do the sacrifices? In other words, were you a righteous Jew? Okay, some were. They weren't perfect. I'm not talking about sinless. The law didn't require you to be sinless. It just said, if you sin, you need to go make the sin offering. And if you do this, you need to do that. And you should not defraud your name. In other words, there were people, they didn't live sinless lives, but they lived righteous lives, meaning I did the law of Moses and when I didn't do it, I did what God said I should do about it. Fair enough? So they would be judged by that. What about the Gentiles? 
Noahide covenant. This is not as well known, but after the flood, this is what the Jews believe, if you look, and this is true, you'll find it in the text, pretty much, is when he comes to Noah, he says, we're gonna restart this thing, and I've got seven rules for you. Jews, 613. Gentiles, seven. And part of it is, is uh, you know, don't uh, set up courts of justice, don't murder people. There are just seven things in what's called the covenant with Noah that applies to everybody that's lived since Noah, okay? And so people would be judged under that covenant that they are with God. Things that are pretty self-evident that most people kind of know. I probably shouldn't murder people. I feel bad when I do that. Okay, so that would be what they were judged under. And then now, in this dispensation, or since the cross, in the new covenant, we're judged by whether or not we placed our trust in Jesus Christ. That's kind of a simple way. Second view, and this is cryptic, but I'll talk more about it on Friday. There's some interesting elements in the scriptures that hint at the idea that everybody, even when they're dead, will hear the good news about Jesus Christ, and some will respond and some will not. And this is, this is a little cryptic, but some people believe that in some sense, Jesus will even preach the good news to the dead, and that anybody who's saved is saved through faith in Christ. But just like most people who were alive and heard the message of Jesus Christ, most people who are alive today and hear the message of Jesus Christ don't become followers of Christ, right? I mean, they're people that reject it is all I'm trying to say. So will be the case when they're dead. So just to answer that as briefly as I can, there are a couple of different views about how that will work. But everybody would agree, God is a just judge. He will judge justly. Good question. Okay, so assuming that we subscribe to one of the four Christian views that you've presented, mm -hmm. should our millennial viewpoint influence our view of the rest of Scripture? That's a great question. I think if you let your tribulation point of view, futurist, historicist, symbolic, preterist, or your millennial view, premillennialist, postmillennialist, amillennialist, influence how you read the rest of scripture, you've got a hold of the tail of the dog. I wanna bring dogs back in, because I feel like after the last lesson, I've got a bad rap here, so I wanna bring dogs back into this in a good way. In other words, I think that's a backwards way of reading it. Does that make sense? In other words, what's really essential is, Jesus, what did you tell me about the fundamental truths? Book of Revelation is symbolic. I mean, it's, it's apocalyptic. It's got a lot of imagery. And that doesn't mean it isn't true. It just means it's a little harder to be dogmatic, isn't it? Nobody has any doubt about what must I do to be saved, right? And no one has any doubt about how now shall I live? Well, you got a whole New Testament telling you that. So I don't think, I understand the question, and I would nuance it and say some do, but big picture, don't, don't let the tail wag the dog, so to speak. Let's focus on the essentials, and then when you come to this, you realize this is God intending to encourage me, not intending to confuse me. And so regardless of our different points of view, you're gonna distill it, and every one of these points of view agrees with the most important things, and that is God is sovereign. He loves me enough that he will preserve me through suffering, and in the end, evil will be judged, and we will live with Christ forever. Every one of these views agrees with that. So we'll take that away and, and just argue about the rest every now and then. Okay, so post-millennial view, kind of same as all-millennial. Everybody's gonna come uh, to life and everybody's gonna be judged together. So let's finish this up and I just wanna make a couple of closing comments. We're back to our paragraph. I saw the great white throne and earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And then at the end, then death and Hades themselves were thrown into the lake of fire. Remember, death is the last thing that'll be destroyed. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And so I wanna talk about that idea for just a minute. And this is the essence of the gospel. If you stop and think about it, everybody has a death sentence, right? We're all gonna die, and we're all gonna be judged based on what we've done, and I don't care how nice you are, 
we're not gonna measure up to God's standard. And I don't think there are many people that would agree with that. Most people, or they would disagree with that. Most people would simply say, well, I just don't believe in God. And I'm gonna do it my way, he can take it or leave it. I mean, most people that reject God, reject God. Even the ones that say, oh, I wanna be a Christian, but I'm gonna live my life the way I want. Well, that's just a pleasant way of rejecting God, right? That's just a passive aggressive way of rejecting God. I'm still gonna live my way. And the, the, what the scripture's talking about, it's not about the behavior. I know that sounds crazy because you're gonna be judged based on what you've done, but here's the issue. The question is, who's gonna pay for what you've done? Because somebody's gonna pay for sin either way. So think about it this way. Sin is going to be paid for. Judgment is all over the Bible, and it has to be, because if there's no judgment, there's no justice. God is a just God. Justice has to be done, and that means sin must be paid for. Now, you and I have no problem with that, with Adolf Hitler. You have no problem. I could fill in the blank. I'm sure you have people you work with, you'd fill in the blank. I'm kidding. But my point is, evil people, we don't have any problem with that. Like, absolutely, you should judge them. Problem with that is, we're all sinners, aren't we? Oh, well, he's worse sinner. Oh, I don't disagree with that. But what's your point? Where are we drawing the line here? You know where the line's drawn? God drew the line, and he says, be holy as I am holy. So here's the problem. Everybody's got a big problem here and sin is gonna be paid for. So you can think of the gospel this way if you want to. The only real question is who's gonna pay for this sin? Because we're all gonna stand before God and we're all going to deserve condemnation. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is, I'm just quoting scriptures now, no one is righteous, not even one. In other words, all of us have sinned and all of us we cannot pay, we're bankrupt. I got nothing to pay for this sin. Well, you know what happens when that happens? You're condemned, right? You got sin, can't deal with it, that's called death. And so there you go, you death, Satan's got a mortgage on your soul, you can't pay the debt, guess where you're going? You're going to hell, right? I mean, that's simple. This is just simple thinking. This is the simple Christian message. It's not rocket science. And, and it makes perfect sense, everybody, is got sin and every, all sin has to be paid for. The only difference is whether or not you're gonna trust Jesus Christ. You're not gonna do more than trust Jesus Christ. That's why Christianity is very difficult. It's not like, okay, Jesus, I love you. I appreciate it. You paid my sins, I'm going to heaven. I'll just be as nice as I can. Okay, nah, sorry about that. That's, that's not what it takes. What it takes is I will die to myself and I'm no longer gonna live, what did Paul say? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In other words, okay, that old guy's dead. I wanna be with you. And I am your servant. What is, how does Paul open every letter in the New Testament? Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Proudly, he says, he owns me now, not the devil. And when judgment time comes, guess what? He died for me. He paid the price for my sins. That's a simple view of Christians viewing judgment. It makes a great deal of sense, doesn't it? That's not illogical, it makes perfect sense. If you make the fundamental assumption that Christians make, there is a God and we have rebelled against him and that price must be paid, then you have the gospel in a nutshell. If you don't believe in God, well then sure, I know why you're not a Christian, right? And if you aren't worried about paying the debt, like, oh, I'll pay that later, just put it on my credit card. Okay, fine, you'll end up paying it sooner or later. But the fundamental message of the gospel is this, God loved you enough that he didn't leave you dead in your sins. Ephesians chapter two, and I know I'm just throwing scripture. I want, when you read the New Testament, I want you to connect it. As for you, Paul says, you all used to be dead in your sins when you used to follow the ways of this world, but God made you alive in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And so the, the idea of why is a judgment important? A judgment is important for two reasons. One, justice must be done. And secondly, you and I knowing that justice will happen and our, our loved ones and everyone we see, there will be an accounting. 
even non-believers think there needs to be justice in the world. They just don't know how to make it happen. Well, I've got good news for you. God's gonna make it happen. And you know what? You need to be concerned about the debt that you owe, and I wanna introduce you to Jesus Christ. That's the essence of the gospel message. Make sense? That's why judgment is so important. Everybody believes that justice should be done. Christians simply know how it's gonna happen. Okay? That was preachy, but that's true. And I want you to read the scriptures that way. Okay, next week we end with this. A new heaven and a new earth. Is it spiritual? Is it physical? Will I still have back pain in heaven? I don't know, you know. My big question is, will there be mosquitoes there? If so, I don't wanna go, I just don't. So, seriously, we'll talk about heaven next week. I'll see you then. <laughs>